Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. It is so good to see all of you. This is very, very exciting for me. And what do you think of this background? Does it work? Can you see it? Do I look okay? I don't have Shana here to give me the last check. But uh, yeah, my beard's growing out. We don't actually shave our beard during the Omer, but I'm not going to get lost in that. Listen, I'm really excited to see all of you, and I, and I have a lot I want to share with you today. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share with you, for all of you coming here. It's not something that I take for granted. I'm very grateful for it. And then I'm also grateful to Hashem that he put the words in my mouth that I want to share with you, and that he allowed me to articulate the words, that he brought the words to me. That's also not something that I take for granted. Um, but before I do share, it's common knowledge that a student should never speak before his teacher. So allow me to introduce my beloved friend and Rebbe, Jeremy Shalom Gimpel. Fellowship. I'm uh, making this video here at the top of the mountain in our house of prayer, just to kind of bring you guys into where we are and what it's like. It's just beautiful here, and I've been spending a lot more time here than usual. I think in preparing for May 2nd and building up the courage to do what we're about to do. And so today I really want to talk about holiness and how that is a gift to help us overcome and help us persevere and help us achieve great things in the world. I think people misunderstand what the word holy means and what its purpose is. And that's what I want to talk about. Let me just put this up here on the stand. <laughs> All right, there we go. And so what I want to talk today about is about what it is to be holy. And this week's Parsha is called Parashat Kedoshim. Um, it's the Parsha of holiness. And I feel like the word holiness kind of creates some sort of image in our mind of elderly monks meditating on a mountain, um, pious people, and all of that is nice, but I think sometimes I might miss the core of what the word holy really means. What does the word holy mean? What does the word kadosh mean? So um, most translations, most interpretations say, ah, the word kadosh, it means separated. It means we're going to designate it. And it's not just separated, but it's designated to a holy cause, to a godly cause. And so in that way, kadosh means if there was like a god-o-meter that we could sort of somehow... Um, scale or measure the amount of godliness in the world. The same way that you can measure the temperature. It's like this hot now. If How much godliness is in this thing or in this place or in this time? So the more godliness, the more holy. Okay, but so amazing. The word in Hebrew, kadosh, also means to invite. Like before the nation of Israel and the mixed multitudes of the nations stood in Mount Sinai, they were called to Kadosh. <laughs> they were called Vekidashtam. And Rashi says, the Midrash says, they were invited to come to Mount Sinai. Now, what does that mean then? It's like, oh, what we're trying to do if we want to become holy, in some ways we're trying to invite God into our lives, to in, into our being. And the more godliness we can sort of hold, the more holy we become. But then what happens? The godliness inside us that should make us stronger. 
And I know that that seems almost obvious, but I want to think of it in a totally new way now. Not as holiness as a, a monk meditating on a mountain, but think of it this way. The word baruch means blessed, and that also comes from the word brecha, which means pool. And so now imagine this. When we say baruch Hashem, something happened. What are we doing? We're inviting God into that reality. Something good happened. Baruch Hashem. Thank you, God. Blessed be you, God. It's inviting God into that moment. That's what Baruch means. When we're blessing God, we're bringing him into the moment, bringing him into our meal, bringing him into our family, bringing him in to whatever that blessing is about. That's what the word blessing means. It actually means to invite God into that reality. So by blessing something, well, you're making it a little bit holy. <laughs> That's why we sanctify the Sabbath with the blessing on the wine. That blessing sanctifies the day. All right, so now, if we invite God into our life by blessing him, now imagine this. The sages of Israel say the most cryptic statement that I never understood. They say, man and woman should bless God for the bad, just as they bless God for the good. And I'm like, what does that mean? That doesn't make any sense. Well, how could we possibly do that? I mean, yes, we can sort of intellectually and with faith believe that everything that happens is for the good. Okay, something bad happened to me. I'm going to believe there's a big picture here. I'm so small. I just don't see it all. Somehow all of this is going to turn out for the good. Treasures will be found. Somehow I'll pull something out of this situation. It's going to help me grow. I got it. <laughs> but to bless God when something bad happens? I mean, who does that? Oh, thank you, God. I'm being shot at now. Thank you. Oh, I lost my job. Baruch Hashem, I lost my job. <laughs> like, who's going to, oh, I'm sick now. Oh, Baruch Hashem, who says that? But you like talk to, you know, believers and Jews, it's like, that's it. We're just like, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. It's constantly on our lips. What is that? Well, so there's a mindset there that's being trained and drilled into us, whether we know it or don't know it. But imagine what would happen if we had the mindset of really being holy. We really felt it. When we said Baruch Hashem, we invited God into our life in a real way. And all of a sudden, we had like a God-powered life. One of my rabbis, Rabbi David Aaron, wrote a book called The God-Powered Life. That you have life with emunah, that should energize you, it should empower you, it should give you strength. But imagine this. We really have that faith. And then I'm in the army. And I'm being shot at. I'm like, oh, Baruch Hashem. Now I know where that terrorist is. I'm going to go eliminate him. I lost my job. Oh, Baruch Hashem. I'm going to go get a better job now. I'm, I got injured as I was training. Oh, Baruch Hashem. I can finally relax and let my body recover. I got sick. Oh, Baruch Hashem. I have so many documentaries that I really, really wanted to watch, but I didn't allow myself to watch. Now I'm sick and bad. I can finally watch all of those documentaries I wanted to watch. It's like, wow, wait a minute. That mindset of being holy empowers us to look at life and then invite God into every single situation and then to truly bless God. Just as we bless God for the good things, to bless God, to bring God in for the bad things. And when the bad things strike and we have a challenge ahead of us, it's like, good, Baruch Hashem, now I can be better. Now I can be stronger. And in every situation, the ideal believer is meant to bless God. And when we do that, slowly but surely, as we invite God more into our lives, we ourselves become more holy.
And so I really feel like that's the point of this place. That's the point of this fellowship. People that have started to come out here again now. It's so exciting that in Israel, Corona is finally just, it might as well have disappeared. People are just walking around without masks anymore. The, the, everything is open now and people are coming now back out to the mountain and they come here and they're filled with light. They're filled with holiness. They just are filled with inspiration and they go out into the world with bringing that light back to their families, bringing that light back to others. And I know that from the feedback that we get, people from this fellowship, they're filled with a certain light that emanates from these mountains of Judea and they bring it to their loved ones and their families. That is the essence of holiness. It's not just separated, it's inviting, dedicating, and then in that, empowering, empowering us and empowering everyone around us. So I bless us all that we stare every challenge in the eye and invite Hashem there and then really know, Baruch Hashem, this is for our good. Baruch Hashem, this is for our good. Be'emet, really. And the more we invite God into our lives, the stronger we'll be, the holier we'll be, and that holiness is our strength. That's why the Maccabees, the greatest Jewish heroes in Jewish history, were the high priests and the priests of the temple, the holiest people in Israel, were our greatest courageous warriors because that holiness really creates courage. And so I bless all of us to really feel that courage and that our faith should empower us and that we should all take another step, another step toward inviting God in and making our lives just a little bit more holy. All right, my friends, shalom. Jeremy, that was beautiful. Thank you. That is a I cannot wait for all of you to come and experience the house of prayer. The whole farm, but the house of prayer is like the soul of the farm. And to walk in there, we're just immersed in holiness, as Jeremy said. And Jeremy's a holy guy. It's actually really cool the things that we're struggling with, what we're grappling with. I'm hearing Jeremy talk because we're around and immersed in so much holiness, but it's a new, deeper holiness than we've experienced for thousands of years. It's, it's such a celebration that these are the questions that we are seeking answers for. There were times we had to deal with life and death. If you only have enough bread to save your life or someone else in the ghetto of Warsaw, and now we're struggling to define and understand the different dimensions of holiness in the land of Israel and in Judea. It's just, thank God, Baruch Hashem, it really is so beautiful. So, um, so you know, the thing if the only screen that I ever looked at was that of our fellowship, I would think that Mashiach had already arrived. I mean, talk about the lion lying down with the lamb. For thousands of years, there had been animosity between Jews and Christians, or, or more accurately and honestly, persecution from Christians to Jews. Uh, and, and now I look at our fellowship, and while on the one hand, it's filled with Jews from throughout the world, I've come to understand that there are Jews living from throughout Judea, from throughout Jerusalem, from all throughout Israel, that are either with us live or watching the recording every single week. And they come up to me and tell me about it in the street, in synagogue, wherever. It's exciting. I, I really never really entertained that. <clears throat> but on the other hand, as far as Christians are concerned, I think Jeremy told me that we have Christians from over 30 countries that are part of this fellowship. So that speaks for itself. Um, it's, uh, there's, just, there's so much reason to have hatred or at the very least distrust, but there's none of that here. All, all I've experienced for myself 
and heard from others is that there's love and goodwill and desire to give. That's what's here in our fellowship. And so I wanted to start off the fellowship talking about that because of how starkly and dramatically the love and brotherhood in this fellowship contrasts with the hatred and division and darkness that I see and that I feel taking over so much of the world. And to me, it feels like the hatred is growing, not only in strength, but in speed and in momentum. And as I was reading through this Parsha, well, I felt like it couldn't have come at a better time because within this Parsha is really the antidote, the only cure to the hate that is growing in strength and power every single day. Because that's the central theme of this week's Torah portion, love. The truth is that love is the central theme of the entire Torah, uh, but not only the whole Torah, but all of existence itself. Love was the primary motivation which inspired God to create the world. And this week's Torah portion contains within it the verse, the pasuk, that perhaps best encapsulates all of it. And that verse, it really, it, it cuts to the core. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It's the second half of the verse. We'll come back soon to the entirety of the verse, but for right now, I just want the, the last five words. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Hashem. So why does this verse follow the words, you shall not love your neighbor as yourself with the words, I am the Lord? What's the connection between loving our fellow man and loving God. So allow me to share a story. And if some of you have heard it already, please forgive me. Uh, I'm sure you, you will forgive me because it's that good. I consider myself a storyteller to some degree. And this is one of my very favorite stories. It's an ancient story, which I heard from the mouth of Rav Noach Weinberg. Zatzal. He was the founder of Aish, of Aisha Torah. Anyways, it's a story about two friends they loved each other very much. One moved to Rome and the other moved to Syria. And they hadn't seen each other for many, many years. And finally, the friend from Syria went to visit his friend in Rome. And while he was there, uh, they accused him of, of, of spying. They said, you're a spy and I'm going to kill you. And he said, I promise you, I'm not a spy. He, they said, you're a spy and I'm going to kill you. He said, please, allow me to go back to my family in Syria, to, to at least to say goodbye to them, to close up my business. They'll never know what happened to me. Let me do that. I'll come back in two months time and you could kill me then. And the king laughed and he said, you're not going to return. You'll just stay there. And he said, if I don't return, I have a guarantor. You can kill my friend. And the king laughed and he was intrigued. And the friend said, no, your majesty, if he doesn't return, you can kill me. So the king was intrigued. He let the man go. And the man went back to Syria. He said goodbye to his family. He closed up his business. But uh, they were crying, begging him not to return. But he said, of course, I'm going to. And he, he left to return to Rome with plenty of time to get back. But on his way there, the camel broke his leg and the ship wasn't picking up wind and it was taking more time than ever to get back. And, and uh, finally, on the day of his execution, he finally arrived. He's running towards the center of town and he sees his friend there with a rope around his neck and he's screaming, no, I'm, don't kill him. Don't kill him, please. I'm, I'm back. Please kill me. And the friend with the rope around his neck turned to the king and said, no, he was supposed to be here first thing in the morning at 9 a.m. It's 1030. You have to kill me. And, and the, he said, no, that's not true. I had to just be here today. You have to kill me. They, they said, you have to kill me. You have to kill me. They're each saying you have to kill me. And the king cannot believe his eyes. And he said, stop, quiet. No one will die under one condition that you make me your third friend. That's the power of peace and of friendship. That's the power of love. And I really believe that when God is looking down at this fellowship, 
He's looking at our hearts. And he knows that many of us see things differently, even on sort of fundamental issues, that we believe differently. But I, I just know that it doesn't matter because when he sees the love between us, he just wants to be our third friend. So I want to start off the fellowship with a special prayer. And it's based on Psalm 133, verse 1. How good and how pleasant is it that brothers also sit together. Now, so many Jews, uh, even from assimilated backgrounds, non-observant Jews, they know the words of this verse because it's such a famous and beautiful song. Can I get some? Do you know the words to this song? Have you heard it before? So, you know, sometimes you can be so familiar with something that you don't notice rather obvious questions. So if Yaakov Nagen points out that in the Kabbalah, the mystics share a beautiful truth about this verse. Because the verse could say, How good and how pleasant is it the brothers sit together? But why does it need to say the word gam? The brothers also sit together. Also what? So the reason that the Zohar brings is that it says gam also to include the Shekhinah, God's presence. I think uh, sometimes Christians, they call it the, the Shekinah. So Jews, they call it the Shekhinah, God's presence. That when two companions are together, but truly together, that the Shekhinah dwells with them. When there is true love and there's true friendship, Hashem dwells there with us. And he simply wants to be our third friend. So I thought that I would start off the fellowship with the prayer, but a different type of prayer that I was honestly a little bit nervous about. I don't know how it's going to go, but we're all family here. We're all friends. I can make mistakes. It's worth trying. And I th thought perhaps we could try to sing that verse together to pray that verse together, that I could read it with you, that you could read it with me, and then we could try to turn on all the microphones and sing it together, that perhaps our voices united, our souls united, Hashem will be singing it with us. So the incredible Tabitha is going to invite you to have your microphones turned on. I hope it works because we haven't done this before. And you just click yes, and you turn on your, your, the, the microphone. Now, I can't see anyone, but I can hear a lot of people, so this is working out. Let's just go over the words one more time together, okay? We're here. Okay, now we're going to mute for one second. Tabitha, can you hear me? Mute for one second, and, and I will sing the words. I Okay, there's always going to be bumps, but at least I realized that into the rest of the fellowship on mute. That's exciting. Okay, so it really should be Jeremy singing, but God gave me my voice and it sing from my heart. So I'm going to sing the words together. And Tabitha, if you want to go back to the prior slide. So this is how it goes. Hine matov. <clears throat> Sorry. Hine matovu manaim. Shevet Achim Gam Yachad Hine Matovu Manaim 
שבת אחים גם יחד. הנה מה טוב, שבת אחים גם יחד. הנה מה טוב, שבת אחים גם יחד. הנה מה טוב ומה נעים, שבת אחים גם יחד. So let's sing that together, but not just to each other, but from our hearts, to Hashem. So Tabitha, you want to try the unmuting again? Okay, on three, let's try to do this together. sounded, but I can tell you that it, it has touched deeply, touched my heart, because I'm flipping through the pages and seeing all of your beautiful, shining faces, like Moses, like radiance coming out of your faces, and we're around the world, and we're singing together. So perhaps objectively, I don't know how that sounded, but I really know in Hashem's ears, that was the like the Levites in the temple. Really, and, and uh, I'd love for you to reach out to me and tell me if you thought that that was good and maybe we could try to do that again together. I want us to connect together. I want us to do that. That was just so beautiful. So, so thank you, Ben Tabitha. Thank you for that. I hope we can do more of that. Okay, so, uh, so Hashem, as we dive into this fellowship together, please allow the wisdom and the light and the truth of your Torah to penetrate our hearts. Let our hearts become filled with love for you, for each other, and love for our fellow man so that the world can experience the healing and redemption that it so desperately needs. Amen. Okay, so you see what I'm saying? It's like a preview, a taste of Messianic times. Because in this week's Torah portion, when we read that we are not allowed to bear a grudge or take revenge, that's what we're reading, which, by the way, is not as simple and straightforward as it sounds. I could do the whole fellowship just on the nuances around that. Yet, I really feel like there's certain themes that are coming out in what I'm saying and speaking about that just come out for me, because those are the themes that are the most important. So I can speak for myself when I say that I personally have no grudge and no desire for revenge. I know it sounds crazy for me to even say that, but I'm saying that knowing that there are members among our fellowship that are children and grandchildren of Nazis. They've told me this themselves. 
Yet I feel no grudge, not even a drop, not even residue. And how do I know that? How can I be so sure of how I'm feeling? Because those feelings are simply not able to simultaneously coexist with the feelings of love and goodwill that fill my heart for them and for all of you. And I don't bring up the family connection to the Nazis to make these holy Germans um, feel bad or to remind them of it. No, on the contrary, I'm bringing it up to reveal the beauty and the power of repentance, that it can bring not only forgiveness, but it can bring love, that it can transform the greatest darkness imaginable into the greatest light possible. It's, it's remarkable. It's redemptive. If we really opened our hearts to it, we would just cry. We would just cry. The truth is that I've always felt that that would be the response of all of mankind when redemption comes, that we'll just let out one big cry. We'll just cry together and let it all out. And then we'll all laugh together. And I'm saying that with a surety because I feel like, you know, God says when he returns us to the land, he'll take out our hearts of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And I've been thinking that there's something, something nice or comfortable about having a heart of stone, right? It's not sensitive. You're not vulnerable. And when, you, when this heart of flesh comes in, all of a sudden, just these emotions come and the tears start to flow. And I think it's just the beginning of it. But, um, but I, I think I'm getting ahead of myself with all this because the only screen I watch is not the fellowship. I watch the news and I drive the roads and I see what's happening around the world and even what's happening with the Arabs here in Israel. And it seems like we are uh, quite far away from global love of mankind and the universal love of Hashem. It's almost like there are two divergent directions or trajectories that the world is going on in. One is headed towards love and light, and the other is plunging towards hatred and darkness. Okay, so how do we bring more love to the world? How do we bring the love and banish the hatred? And you know, I'm gonna try to answer these questions, but I don't wanna make it seem like I'm coming here with the answers. I'm just trying to figure out like all of you. So let's look together at what the Torah says about love. But before I do, I want to say how beautiful it is that I think we're all here learning about this together from the Torah, because one of the most, the oldest and most ironic misconceptions about the Torah on behalf of Christians is that Judaism has a God of anger and jealousy and revenge, whereas the God that Christians worship from the New Testament is the God of love. I've encountered this numerous times from very well-meaning Christians. And, and, you know, they, I never understood it fully because Christians claim to believe in what they call the Old Testament that, that I, that we call the Torah. And they claim to believe in the Torah as well. But from my earliest years, all I can remember associating with God was first and foremost, love. From my first night in the world, my mother would recite the Shema. Right? She would hold me in her arms and she would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then she would immediately follow it with, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. That is the, the first thing every night we fall asleep. That's the last thing we hear before we fall asleep. The primary feeling I remember getting from my very first rabbi, Rabbi Radinsky. Now he was a a towering, white, gray, bearded giant. He must have been like 6'6", six, six, like
like two meters tall. And, uh, and the man, his essence was pure love. I actually remember looking up at Rabbi Radinsky and I couldn't have been more than five years old. It's one of my earliest memories. He was towering over me. And I remember thinking that must be God himself. That's God. Rabbi Radinsky to me was God. And, um, and, and that actually stayed with me for many years because you see the Torah, the, he was a man of Torah and the Torah is about love. And that's been one of the most obvious truths, at least for me on my journey from the very, very beginning. But there always was for me an obvious question. How can the Torah legislate emotion? How can God tell us how we need to feel? Now, we've touched on this before, I know. But, you know, it, there's, there's nothing wrong with repeating things that need repeating in our day and age, at least for me. I'm talking through myself here, to myself here. It's something that I've struggled with for so many years. And the answer that I'm holding on to right now is that by Hashem commanding us how to feel, he's essentially telling us that the other emotions that we could be feeling at that moment that violate his commandments on how we should feel, those feelings are, are an illusion. They don't apply. They're based on a fundamental mistake in the way we're seeing the world and understanding life. The example I want to consider is the 10th commandment, right? Lo tachmod, thou shalt not covet. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. I don't know if we have a slide for that. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. That's the commandment. <clears throat> and it's the same question I have about that that I have about love. How can God tell us that we can't covet, that we can't be jealous? It seems like the most natural human emotion. So the deeper truth that I think the Torah is conveying to us is that when it says not to covet, it's as I said, the coveting is an illusion that everything you have is perfectly orchestrated for you to give you the opportunity to best serve Hashem in the way that only you can, to put you in the perfect situation, which if you accept it with love and possibly even if you don't, will allow you to grow and evolve and expand your midot, expand your attributes, and thereby come closer to Hashem and have a relationship with Hashem, which by far is the deepest and most profound joy and pleasure you can experience both in this world and in the next. Coveting anybody's anything is no different than a plumber coveting a doctor's stethoscope. Why would a plumber want a doctor's stethoscope for? What would he want it for? That won't help him in the mission he needs to perform. The same is true with love. How can God order us to love? Hashem's teaching us that love is the truth. And the things that are standing in the way of that love, and in various parts of my life, I'm actually struggling with this right now. Certain friends, situations, and whatever's standing in the way of that love that are preventing us from experiencing that love, however real and legitimate they may be and they may seem, we have to recognize them for the, the illusion that they are. We have to dig deeper and we have to work it through. And when we get to the root and we're able to experience even a little bit of Hashem's love for us, right? When my mother said that to me, Shema Yisrael, we say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So when we experience the feeling of love that Hashem has for us, even if we experience for a fleeting moment, like a, like a lightning bolt in a dark forest, the minute we see the truth of Hashem's love for us, we wouldn't be able to hold ourselves back from loving him in return. 
But loving Hashem is one thing, loving our fellow human being. Now that's another thing altogether. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this love. And really that's the only thing we can do. We can talk around it. We can talk uh, about it. But love is an experience that's so primal and foundational that you can't really put it in words. How, how do we love? Who do we love? There are so many questions. So let's take a moment and meditate on this verse. I'm going to read it to you both in Hebrew and in English. And as I read it, think of someone that this verse makes you think of. Va'ahavta l're'echa kamocha ani Hashem. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Hashem. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Hashem. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Hashem. Now, here's my question. The assignment was to think of a person, the person who you thought about. Were they in the room with you? Now, if you're anything like me, when I first did this exercise, you may have thought of someone who you have some tension with, maybe, or someone you need to try and love more. But let me tell you a beautiful teaching that Rav Shlomo Karlbach taught. He said that Re'echa, your neighbor, the person Hashem is telling us to love with all of our hearts, the person Hashem is telling us to love as ourselves, is the person who is next to you right now. Your neighbor is the person who's next to you right now, wherever you are, whoever you're with. Your Re'echa is the person that you're with right now. And if you know about Rav Shlomo Karlbach, you know that he lived this truth. If you ever want to read a book that will make you cry, just tears and tears, it's called Holy Brother. It's about Rav Shlomo Karlbach. Now, when I first heard this Torah from him, it pierced my heart and it stayed with me all these years in such a deep way because it's so empowering. It allows you to be fully present. You know, that we always talk in my family about FOMO, fear of missing out, that maybe there's some neighbor somewhere you should be loving somewhere else, but no. The neighbor you're supposed to love as yourself is whoever is with you right now. And when you make that shift, then it allows you to fulfill this fundamental commandment of the Torah wherever you are right now at this very moment. Look who you're with right now. But loving others can be real work. There are some people in your life, I'm sure, that you can't help but, but love. It just comes easy. Other people are more difficult. But one thing I think is pretty close to a universal truth is that we all want to be loved. We all want to be loved. The de desire to be loved is one of the deepest and most universal impulses that there is. But that's not what the Torah commands. The Torah does not command that our neighbor should love us, but that we should love our neighbor. So Rav Yaakov, and again, I spoke about him earlier, who, by the way, friends, you all must meet and learn with when we come together out here. And when you come to Judea and you're able to be together on our mountain, you need to meet him. Please, God, that should happen. Because um, he's just such a beautiful soul. Anyways, he brought this story that just illustrates this point. The story is about a pregnant woman that sought out the blessing of a holy rabbi in Jerusalem. And this rabbi said that the woman could decide on her own blessing. And after, uh, you know, a brief consideration, she asked that her baby be blessed that everyone should, that met her child should love the child. Now, the rabbi was hesitant, but uh, she insisted. So the rabbi gave this blessing, and indeed it was fulfilled. And everyone loved the child. But everyone loved the child so much 
that they tolerated his bad behavior and they pardoned his character flaws. And this, of course, caused the child to grow up being corrupt. And you can only be corrupt for so long before you become aware of the misery of your own existence. And so the corrupt man eventually investigated, researched, he asked his mother and he realized the source of his misery and he went back to this pious rabbi and he begged him to reverse the blessing. And rather than to be loved by everyone that he meets, he asked for the blessing that he should love everybody that he meets. And so the rabbi reversed the blessing and he finally became a truly happy man who always saw the good in others and loved them with his whole heart. So King Solomon, he says in Sefer Mishle in the book of Proverbs, as water reflects the face to the face, so does the heart reflect the heart of one man to another. But how do we fill our hearts with this love again? I keep coming back to this question. How do we fill our hearts with love so that we'll be emanating love to all those around us? Well, the words of King Solomon that we just read really give context to the wisdom in chapter 1, verse 15 of Ethics of Our Fathers. It's the second half of the verse. I'll read the whole verse. And by the way, friends, you really need to read if you have a chance and if the spirit moves you. Look into Ethics of Our Fathers. It is, it's not very long, but it's one of the most packed and beautiful and rich uh, parts of the entire oral Torah. Anyways, second half of the verse, it says, Shammai Omer, as, uh, well, the whole verse, Shammai Omer, Aset Torah Keva, Shammai used to say, make your study of the Torah a fixed practice. Speak little, but do much. And here it is. And receive all men with a pleasant countenance. What does this mean to receive everybody, to greet everybody you see with a happy countenance? It means to smile. To smile when you meet people, when you see people. You want to believe what a difference it can make for someone's day. It may be a subconscious thing most of the time. Uh, they don't even realize that they feel better or happier. But that smile you gave them, it just brings more light to the world. And, and it can spread. It, it makes people happier. And they, in turn, will be more likely to make their neighbor happier by smiling at them. Now, this was a little bit more natural for me because, as many of you know, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. And uh, it, that's the southern part of the United States. And smiling at your neighbor, people you just pass on the street, whether you know them or not, well, it was a big part of the culture. And uh, you, you get out of the big cities in, in Texas and you even get a greeting most of the time. People uh, tip their hat, they'll say morning or howdy. And it's just sweet and it's warm. And as you can imagine, let's just say the first time I went to New York City, it was a little bit of a culture shock. And now the beautiful part of all this is that you can do it even if you're not feeling it. And even more beautifully, smiling at others, giving a loving greeting will help you feel it even if you're not. Now there's a book called Sefer HaChinuch, it's from the 13th century, that it shares this mechanism. It says, After your actions, your heart is pulled. Forgive me, I just want to take a drink. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu. So it says, after your actions, your heart is pulled. Now, the ancient Jewish wisdom that was around centuries before 
cognitive behavioral therapy or any um, cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's an interesting thing. Anything like that. This was the wisdom from the Jewish people. And one of the greatest examples of this truth is Jeremy's goat, Lucy. Has Jeremy told you about Lucy? Have I told you about Lucy? Wanda? No? Okay, good. Because that would be sad if you heard about Lucy already, because everyone loves Lucy. She's one of the stars of the farm. She's somewhat of an ambassador even for our mountaintop, like the goat ambassador at least. And why? Why does everybody love her? Because she's always smiling. Here's a picture of Lucy. And you know, it, it, it pains me. That was the picture I could find. It's not, it doesn't do her justice. She's always smiling. And perhaps Hashem made her that way. And it's not her actually smiling, but it doesn't even matter the reason or whether she has any intentions at all. What matters is that she's smiling and that smile makes the whole difference. And uh, while these behavioral modifications that we're talking about and perspectives, they're beautiful. If we really want that love to last and to pierce our hearts and to become a part of us, we have to work on the way that we think. Now, we spoke about this before. I was just sent this message from my beloved inspirational friends in the fellowship right now, Bridget and Harold from Germany, who told me that our last session together reminded them of a Jewish teaching, which they translated into German and put on their wall. Here's a picture. So I don't know if you can read it, if it's big enough, or if you speak German, but they framed the teaching that thoughts are the roots of our destiny because they shape our words, our deeds, our habits, our character, and by this, our destiny. I'm summing it up. I'm bringing it all together. They put that up on their wall. How inspiring is that? I thought I was the only person. Yeah, I mean, if you came to my house, you'd see you in my office. It looks like the office of a madman. I have wall charts up and mantras up trying to constantly remember what my mission here is, what the purpose is on a personal level, on a professional level. I don't even know what that even means, a professional level. But, um, but we, we did. We spoke last week about that, about judging people by the benefit of the doubt. Well, Rav Biederman, he did it again. He introduced a verse from Ethics of Our Fathers and pointed out a beautiful truth that I never noticed. I actually quoted this verse um, from Ethics of Our Fathers last week, and I didn't even realize it then, what he's about to point out. Anyways, in chapter one, we read the words, et kol ha'adam You remember this? We spoke about this before. Judge everybody, everybody ha'adam, by the benefit of the doubt, meaning judge everybody favorably. That's how people translate it normally. But it could have just said, have kol adam, judge every person. Why does it say ha'adam? I never noticed that. Why does it say judge have kol ha'adam, which means all of the person to teach us that we need to judge the entire person favorably. You don't just look at the person's sin as an isolated reality. You take the entirety of the person into the equation. And if you do so, you will inevitably see them in a much better light. And that is only the things that you know about the person. Imagine all the great things you don't know about them. If only you knew those things. And it's not only the person themselves, but all people. Now let's go back to the Torah portion. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33. The stranger who resides with you 
shall be to you like one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is big. This is big, my friends. What's the Torah telling us here? That we're not only to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we're not only to love the person we're sitting next to, but we're to love the stranger, the foreigner, the, the other. I know that word is used nowadays in culture, but really the other person other than you. And this is harder to do because the other is always the easiest to blame. The other is always uh, the easiest to scapegoat. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in this week's Torah portion, we talk about the ritual ceremony on Yom Kippur by the high priest with the two goats. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Seir Azazel. Sometimes I feel like Hashem puts some things like this in the Torah that people that are skeptical or their faith is dependent on making sense to them or sounding normal. Well, if, if, if it's dependent on that, then they'll just let it go. It's like it sifts out, it refines people who are really there. Because this idea of the two goats, while it sounds strange, I really think that the idea of loving our neighbors, particularly the other, is deeply and intrinsically tied into this idea. Now, I was very torn about this because I was considering talking about this as the subject for the entirety of the fellowship and dive in really deep, particularly considering what happened this last Friday morning. So what happened this last Friday morning? So early Friday morning, Jeremy came over to my house with a pained and a sad look on his face. And he told me that he needed my help. His first goat, his biggest, most beautiful goat, I forgot her name uh, because I never really liked her. Uh, probably because she never smiled at me. Anyways, she fell off of his terrace somehow and, uh, and broke her neck, which to me was a crazy thing considering that that was exactly what the Parsha of the week is about. Anyways, he needed my help to dispose of the body. I hope it's okay I'm sharing this with you. It doesn't gross you out too much. So we threw the poor thing in the back of the tractor and drove it out to the desert and left her there to be lunch for some lucky Judean desert foxes. Now that was at our farm, but in the temple, it was among the most dramatic and mysterious rituals performed on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. There were two goats, similar in size and, and similar in appearance as possible, and they were brought by the high priest, and lots were drawn, and the one that said to the Lord was offered as a sacrifice, and the one that says to Azazel, well, the high priest would confess over it the sins of the nation, and it was taken to the Judean desert, probably somewhere very near our farm, and it plunged off the side of the mountain to its death. Now, again, there's so much to say about this strange ritual, but I want to focus for a moment on just one of the perspectives, because it, it touches on really one of the great themes that I see behind the hatred and division that is growing in the world. So Rabbi Sachs points out that often, in order to see yourself as good, which pretty much everybody wants to do, you have to project your own evil and your own shortcomings and your own failures that you are either unwilling or unable to recognize in yourself. You have to project them out onto the other, onto someone else, someone different, which by the way, is one of the reasons that the Jews have been the greatest scapegoats throughout history, because we have always been different. Even in this Parsha, we're commanded to be different, right? You shall not be like the Canaanite. The Torah tells us we have to have our own distinct garments, 
clothing, names, culture, being different of part of what it is part of what it is to be a Jew. And if we think that we can ever assimilate, trying to be like the nations of the world will just cause them to hate us more. So we've been scapegoated throughout history. This is true, but we are not the only people who have been scapegoated, not by any means, because individuals and by extension societies find it easier to blame a scapegoat rather than face their own problems honestly and openly. And, and particularly in this world where everybody is fiercely blaming each other and everybody is competing to be the most victimized victim in the world. Everybody seems to be pointing at everybody else and everyone is a potential scapegoat. So one of the many different levels and dimensions of reasons that I, that I learned about this, that we're supposed to commit this, the, this scapegoating ritual is so that we become, at least we become self-aware. So that this natural human impulse to blame others that resides in the Jewish heart as well. We're all mankind and we all have this impulse. And it's as if God is saying, if you need to blame someone else, put it on this goat, but don't blame other people. Don't point the finger at your fellow man. Now as a Jew, there are just no shortage of potentials to point at and blame for any of our shortcomings and our personal failings. And uh, these feelings, you know, when we have grudges and we resent, they don't just remain abstract thoughts. Eventually, they manifest as actions in the world. They manifest as, as grudges that turn into revenge, that turn into to murder. And this is why the verse, which is the central theme of today's fellowship, let's go back to it. It doesn't stand alone. Let's read the entirety of that verse. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Lotikom velotitor you shall not take, take vengeance or bear a grudge against your countrymen. Love your fellow as yourself. I am the Lord. The beginning of the verse tells us not to take revenge and not to bear a grudge. Why? Because doing so is flawed thinking. It's an illusion. And if we do harbor these emotions, it's simply impossible to have love in our hearts. And so what's the difference between nekama, revenge, and netira, which is holding a grudge, right? The first part of that verse. Well, revenge, the sages tell us, is when you ask someone to lend you their knife, for example, and they refuse. And then the next week, they ask you to borrow your knife, and you refuse because they wouldn't let you borrow theirs. That's revenge. And what's a grudge? A grudge is when you ask someone to lend you their knife and they refuse. And then the next week they ask you to borrow your knife and you reply, okay, here's my knife. I'll lend it to you because I'm not like you. You didn't lend yours to me when I needed it, but I'll lend it to you. That is bearing a grudge. You aren't allowed to do that either. Now that is just a situation regarding something as simple as borrowing a knife. Now imagine the Holocaust, imagine slavery, persecution on a national level. Those are things that can cause intergenerational hatred and cycles of violence and revenge and retribution. Even here in Israel, you know, you don't see this broadcast on the news, but the primary source of violence in the Arab world over here is interfighting between families and clans 
who are locked in bloody cycles of revenge and retribution with each other. And the anger towards Israel is that they're saying that the army and the police are not intervening in their own inter-clan violence enough. That's not something that you hear. But really, they have this culture of, of shame. Uh, what, what is shame? That's where the, the stain attaches itself to the person. Whereas in Judaism, we have a culture of guilt, right? Where it's attached to the action. But shame, that's what causes them to need to do honor killings. Shame is external. So they have to fight it out with each other. Whereas we have to deal with it primarily internally, which is where it's really supposed to be dealt with. So how does it all end? How can mankind put a stop to this cycle of, of blame and scapegoating and grudges and revenge and retribution? Well, the best example, the blueprint of this liberation from hate, I believe can be found in the first place in the Torah that we find true forgiveness. It may be the, the first time in history, by the way, that there was true forgiveness, not just a pardon, but true forgiveness. And where is this? Think for a moment. Raise your hands if you can think about where it may be. Yes, it's in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers were so filled with hatred and jealousy that, you know, they felt that their father loved Joseph more than he loved them. They hated him so much that they couldn't speak a single kind word to him. They hated him so much that they were even willing to entertain the idea of killing him. They hated him so much that they, they actually sold him into slavery. Yes, he was sold into slavery, and he was plunged into a 22-year journey of darkness and pain and alienation. He had 22 years to brood and to stew in his anger and to plan his revenge. That would have been the natural order of things. That would have been the natural response. But what did Joseph do? So... His brothers came crawling for help and for mercy, but he did not exact revenge. Not only didn't he exact his revenge, but he didn't even bear a grudge. A grudge, that would have actually been understandable. He could have said, although you had no mercy for me, I'm going to have mercy for you. But no, he didn't even throw the sin in their faces. He didn't even mention it to them. What did he do? He reframed it. He reframed it all in his mind and in his heart. He saw the situation through a divine prism. He recognized truly, not only in his head, but in his heart, that Hashem was behind everything. What did Yosef say to his brothers? Let's look inside. Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. Now do not be distressed and do not castigate yourselves because you sold me to this place because it was to save life that God sent me ahead of you. Yosef rose above the natural human animalistic instinct of being reactive and impulsive by recognizing that it was all from Hashem and it was all for the good. That the brother's shameful act, which he saw that they had clearly repented from, was not necessarily only for his own personal journey that he needed to experience in the world, but that it was necessary for the salvation of the entire nation of Israel. My friends, seeing the world through the prism of faith is not only the secret to love, but it's the secret to life itself. Because wrapped in this week's Torah portion is a powerful verse that in some ways really brings it all together. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And you shall observe my statutes and my judgments, which if man, judges the, uh, if man does them, 
he shall live by them. The Chaibahem is the word in Hebrew. He shall live by them. The divine guidance of the Torah is the secret to living a real life, a true life, a life of freedom in, in which we express the divine image in which we were created. The Torah tells us not only not to be slaves to our natural impulses, to our desires and to our passions, but rather to answer to a higher calling. People say that the Jews were under the law, that we're under the law, that we have the yoke of Torah upon us. I've heard Christians say this, and it's not always in the most flattering way. Well, my, my friend and Rebbe, Yishai Fleischer, he always leans into this accusation. He says that, of course, we're under the yoke. Uh, of course, we're under the law. And we should be grateful for it because it's, we're like uh, an oxen in the field. If the oxen doesn't have a yoke upon it, it'll slam into things. It'll cause tremendous damage. It'll accomplish nothing of any value, only harm and destruction. But if you put a yoke upon the oxen, then it can plow the fields. It can provide food. It can sustain life. The yoke of Torah is our greatest gift for without it, really we're nothing but a wild oxen in the field. Loving your fellow man, not bearing a grudge, not taking revenge, these are not only better ways to live, they are guidelines for truly living. Without the Torah to guide us, without Hashem shining his light upon us, our hearts may be beating within our chests and there may be breath in our lungs. We may be alive, but we're not truly living. There's no liberty, there's no holiness. We're merely slaves to our impulses and our desires. The cycles of, of violence and darkness and hate would continue on, would destroy the world. And so that, my friends, is my prayer. My prayer is that the forgiveness and the repentance and the love that fills our fellowship will spread to all of mankind, that mankind can liberate ourselves from these cycle of violence and re revenge, that the whole world can leave behind this whole victim culture because the fact is that those who blame others and consider themselves as victims will remain as victims. My prayer is that the world can leave behind this whole cancel culture thing. You guys know what I'm talking about with the cancel culture, right? Finding the past mistakes or error that someone made and just writing them off forever. It's a sad and it's a tragic reality and it prevents growth and it prevents repentance, the most beautiful parts of life. My prayer is that the world will see the nation of Israel returning to our land, that they will begin to experience the light and the love which is being generated from the ingathering of the exiles, that they'll see a nation that has more people to blame possibly than any other, that doesn't continue this cycle of blame, but rather ends it, ends it by recognizing, as Yosef did, that it was indeed from the hand of God that we were exiled, and that it's by his hand that we're returning. We say it every week, because of our own sins, we were exiled from our land. It was all part of the plan because it was necessary for, for the journey, for our journey, for reasons that weren't clear to us at the time. This was a journey we needed to experience, not only for ourselves, but for all of humanity. There were sparks of light dispersed around the world. I think many of them are right here in this fellowship with us that we needed to, to ingather. And there were lessons and truths that we needed to learn, not only for ourselves and for our own relationship with Hashem, but lessons that we needed to learn for all of mankind.
Rabbi Sachs explains that before our exile, we were in our land and we had a temple. We couldn't imagine life without a temple. How would we relate to God? How will we sing the words of God on, on foreign soil? How could we ever achieve forgiveness without the temple and the sacrificial system? But we were exiled. And over thousands of years, we've come to understand a deeper truth. That more than anything, God desires our repentance. He desires our hearts. Listen to the words of Hosea. Uh, I don't know the word of uh, Hosea's name in English, but Hosea, who shares this truth. Chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer our words of our lips instead of the sacrifices of bulls. Or the words of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu the prophet. He says, therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you will repent, I will restore you, that you may serve me. He's looking for our repentance, not just for our sacrifices. I think we got too lost in that. Without our exile, we would have never understood that the deepest truth is that it's not the fat of rams that pleases God, but it's our hearts, our love, and our repentance. And now that we're returning to our land, we can be a national manifestation of the Torah as it's meant to be expressed not, not atomized and disconnected personal levels, but on a national level, on a societal level, on a global level. We're not fully there yet, but the sun is rising. The light is beginning to shine. And this is the last, the last source. This is a verse in Deuteronomy, which I've read before, but it, for some reason I read it again and it took on a different meaning. Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five through eight. See, I have taught you decrees and laws so that you may follow them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will be your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great to have righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today? Hashem. Uh, but let it be so. Let the nation see the love and repentance and forgiveness in this fellowship. And let that love inspire them to believe and to understand that there's no reason to cleave to the pain of the past, to hold on to grudges or to take revenge, but rather to replace all of that, to replace the hatred with love, love for each other, and love for you, so that the words of the prophet will come true before our eyes, that nation will not lift up sword against nation, and that war will never be learned again. Amen. I feel like I always wind up with that blessing, that prayer, but that's really where we're at. That's the final prayer we're wanting. We're, we're, we, we need redemption now. We need Mashiach now. And so let me wind this together with possibly my favorite part of the fellowship, which is blessing all of you, with the Aaronic blessing, the Kohanic blessing. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha 
Yisa Adonai Panavelecha, Vyasem Lecha Shalom. May God bless and protect you. May He shine the light of His countenance upon you, and may He give you peace. Amen. Shalom, my friends. I love you all so much. Thank you for being on this journey with me. Stay connected, stay in touch, and God willing, we'll be able to see each other here next week and maybe in the temple in Jerusalem. Who knows? Shalom, shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.